Good evening. Let's start in a word of prayer. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Please bless this time and speak your words that we might encounter the person of Jesus. We ask this in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As Shane mentioned, I'm from Denver, and back in Denver, I live with my brother and his wife and their four kids. James is four. He's a fiery redhead. He's really sharp. He's witty. He's very strong-willed. And the kid can sniff out sugar better than a hound dog. I mean, he can walk into a house, and he knows exactly where to go to find where the treats are. And typically, when James is missing, we know where to find him. He's typically hiding under his parents' bed, sneaking some dessert. So, when it's really quiet, no matter where you are in the house, you say, James, where are you? No response. You start walking down the hall. James, where are you? Nothing. You get down into the, the bedroom. James, where are you? Still silence. So you bend down, and you see his face with a ring of brownie around his mouth. Oh, hi, James. What have you been doing? Oh, nothing. I'm just taking a rest. Oh, okay. okay. Well, I noticed back in the kitchen that there's a brownie missing from, from the dessert plate. Do you know anything about that? Nope. Oh, okay. Well, well, there is one missing. So, do you think you, did you take it? Oh, no, it was Simon. Simon is his two-year-old brother. <laughs> oh, oh, actually, Simon's taking a nap right now. He's been taking a nap for the last couple of hours. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was Daniel. Daniel's his six-year-old brother. Oh, really, buddy? Daniel's at school, remember? He's, he's been at school all day. Oh, yeah, it was Betsy. Betsy is his six-month-old sister. <laughs> oh, really, buddy? I, I actually don't think Betsy took it. And I noticed you have some brownie right there. Um... Did, did you eat it, buddy? <sighs> well, Dad just never lets me have any, ever. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> now, James always keeps me laughing. But truthfully, every time I encounter James in one of these moments, it's just a mirror to my own heart. I'm like, huh, kind of played out in my own life today in my prayer time. That's interesting how that works. But really, I think it's actually a glimpse at just the human condition. It goes back to the very beginning in the garden. When Adam and Eve are walking in communion with God in the garden. And he gives them freedom so that they have the capacity to love and be in relationship with him. But they abuse their freedom and they lose trust in their creator. They grasp at the fruit 
And after this scene, this is where this uh, experience with James brings us. God comes into the garden and he says, where are you? And Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I saw that I was naked, so I hid myself. And as God presses in, he immediately starts to blame others. <laughs> oh, the woman you put me here with, she gave me the fruit. But ultimately, underneath it all is the same fear that James has. You are holding something back from me, God. You don't give me what I need, what I want. And I want to start in this place with us tonight because it's the end of a semester, you're about to start finals soon, and I'm sure anxieties are on the rise. And it's a really important question to ask, where are you? Where are you right now in your relationship with God? It's actually a, a common question I experience when I come to my prayer time or when I'm feeling a little anxious or out of sorts, like I'm running around. When I stop for a second, I can hear God ask me that question, where are you? In a response that I love from the scriptures, from Samuel, here I am, here I am. So I wanna invite us tonight to start in that place. Wherever you're at, if you feel like you're hiding, if you feel like you're distracted, you all chose to come tonight. Praise God. There's a reason he brought you. So I want to encourage us in this moment to stop, just say, Lord, here I am. Because it's in that place that he can encounter us. It's in that open heart when we give him permission to speak that he comes to meet us. Because the crazy thing about the garden is that from the very beginning, even when they abused their freedom and they totally broke their relationship with God, he, he goes to them. He goes and finds them. He pursues them, even in their sin. And he promises redemption. Because we look at what happened in that moment, it wasn't just a slap on the wrist kind of situation. The consequences were devastating. <laughs> because what happened was not just a break in the relationship with the Father, it was a break in relationship with each other, with all of creation, and even within themselves. They no longer were able to perceive the truth and know it for what it was, desire the good, or choose it perfectly anymore. But in that moment, God saw them with love and with mercy, and he promised a redeemer. And all of salvation is just an unfolding of that promise, of God pursuing us, desiring to restore that relationship. But the thing that's really interesting to me is that when you look at the consequences of sin, I mean, you don't really have to argue too much for it in our world. You have to turn on the news for five seconds and be like, yep, sin's real. You know, evil's a real thing. But 
I think there's kind of two facets to it that really plague the human heart. One is just the temporal suffering that comes. We just suffer. God told Adam and Eve that there would be toil as they labor, increased pain in childbirth, that there would be, uh, within one generation, there's, there's death in their family because one son kills another. There's this, there's this grief that comes, this, this actual suffering that comes because of sin. So there's that temporal suffering, but then that, that great anguish is really the ultimate consequence, which is eternal separation from God. It's death. It was never meant to be that way. And again, we all have this innate sense. When, when a family member dies, you're like, it's not meant to be that way. This wasn't supposed to happen. But even beyond that, the great sorrow of death is that we were created by God and for God. That's the purpose of our lives. And God saw, I created you for myself. And by your abuse of freedom, I can't be in a relationship with you anymore. So all the desires you have in your heart will never be fulfilled. They're just never going to be fulfilled because there's not a capacity for you to be in, there, there's a capacity, there's not the ability for you to be in relationship with me anymore because of your abuse of freedom. And so I want to look at these two consequences, the temporal consequences, just like the experience of our felt need for God to come and save us from, our, from the suffering around us, but also that infinite desire we have for God, where death as a consequence is just devastating because we'll never be able to, to be satisfied in our desire for God. Because I would propose that these two things are precisely the places that Jesus wants to meet us. So let's go back to the garden, but this time the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, <laughs> nobody could have anticipated how God was going to fulfill that promise of redemption. He's slowly unfolding it over salvation history, and they're awaiting this Messiah. <laughs> but this, this Messiah was not supposed to be God incarnate. But Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, comes and takes on our humanity. Why? Why did he become a man? Precisely because he wanted to enter into our experience of separation from God. He wanted to enter into our experience of the temporal suffering of humanity because of its broken state. Because he wanted to go to the very place that he, he, he couldn't go, in a, in a sense. He wanted to go enter into that place for intimacy, for communion, for encounter with us, and ultimately to call us to a newness of life. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, think about it. He's experiencing agony, anguish, the experience of alienation, rejection, anxiety, fear, sorrow. Is that not the temporal consequence of sin? This experience of the pain when we make a bad decision or when another person hurts us. I think all of us know that in some sense. In, in his agony, he enters into that place to meet us in a place that nobody else can. No word of consolation from a friend, no physical touch from a family member or significant other can console us in that place. Only Jesus can. But then, on the other side, he goes further than that. He goes to the cross. 
and he enters into death itself, the very thing that will keep us forever from being ultimately satisfied and fulfilled in our purpose to be united in communion with God, he goes to the very heart of it to meet us there. He goes to the very source of the separation to conquer it and to invite us into a newness of life. But the key to that, when he goes down, have you guys ever thought about this in the, uh, the creed, when it says, he descended into hell? After he dies, he descends into hell. It's an interesting thing. Because you're like, isn't hell the place that like, you're eternally separated from God? Like, how can he go there? Well, in that moment, he does still respect people's freedom. So people who had already died and rejected God definitively, that's not where he's going. He's going to all those people, like in the gospel, who are sitting at the, the bosom of Abraham. Do you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? And Lazarus goes after his death to the bosom of Abraham, and then there's uh, the rich man who, who's separated by a chasm, suffering eternal torments. Jesus is going to all those people who had died and were separated from God, but they desired to be with him. They desired that communion with him, but they were not yet able to bridge that gap. So Jesus goes to death in order to bring those who desired him into relationship with himself again. So I want to set this up because how does this apply to our lives? What are the particular sufferings you're going through right now? Some of you may be struggling with serious sin. You might be struggling with an addiction or an attachment, a bad relationship, some kind of perfectionism that's keeping you attached to, to grades or your image that's causing a lot of pain in your life. If that's the case, Jesus wants to meet you there. Some of you might be experiencing just deep desire for love, deep desire for fulfillment, a restlessness inside of you that you're like, why can, can school, can my friendships, can my career, can, my, can this romantic relationship, why can, why can this not be satisfied in me? Jesus wants to meet you there. But in order to kind of draw this out, what does it look like for us to let him meet us there? I want to take two examples from the scriptures of people who I think really walked these two experiences of encounter with Jesus really beautifully. One is the Apostle John. The other is Mary, Mary Magdalene. So let's start with John. Who is John the Apostle? He's a fisherman. He's the son of Zebedee. He's the brother of James. But when we first meet John, where do we meet him? Do you remember where we meet John? We meet John when he's out in the wilderness with Andrew, and they're following John the Baptist as his disciples. Why are they out there? What is John the Baptist doing out there? He's the forerunner of the Messiah. He's calling people to a baptism of repentance. He's preparing the way of the Lord. So John, he's experiencing this desire for God. He's anticipating this Messiah that's been long foretold. He's going out there in search 
of his purpose and relationship, reconciliation with God. So that's this place he's operating from, desire. And in the desert, what happens? Jesus comes out. And John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God. And Andrew and John, they turn and they start following Jesus. And there's this moment where Jesus stops and he turns and he asks him a question. What do you seek? He appeals to desire. What are you looking for? And what does John say? He says, Rabbi, where are you staying? You see in the heart of John a desire to go be with the Messiah. Wait a second. John the Baptist, who I've been following, who's, who's foretelling the Messiah, just said, you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm, I'm all in. Where are you staying? I'm coming. And what does Jesus say in response? He says, come and see. Come and see. He invites him to come be with him. So when your desire, when Jesus asks you, what are you looking for? Tell him. Tell him what you're looking for. And I bet you, he's going to say the same thing that he said to John. Come and see. And John starts to follow him. And as he follows him, he watches Jesus preach and teach and perform miracles. And at some point, Jesus goes up the mountain, he prays, and he comes down and he selects his 12 apostles. And when he selects his 12 apostles, he invites them first and foremost to come and be with him. Then he sends them out. So it's another invitation to deeper intimacy. John continues to follow Jesus in desire. He wants to see what the Messiah is going to do to restore Israel. And then Jesus makes another invitation to come into a deeper intimacy with him. And the interesting thing about John's experience of walking with Jesus is that it clarifies for him his identity. Did you guys ever notice what he calls himself in his own gospel? He doesn't ever say me or John. He says the disciple whom Jesus loved. John discovers his identity in relationship with Jesus. As Jesus engages him in his desire, he starts to realize, whoa, who I am is the one who Jesus loves. And then from there, you see him go with Jesus back to the garden. And in the garden, what does Jesus ask John? He invites Peter, James, and John in particular to remain and keep watch with me. As Jesus is going into this place where he's entering the heart of the wound of humanity, he says, remain here with me and keep watch. See, the interesting thing here is he's taking John's desire for the Messiah, for God, for reconciliation, and he's saying, come with me into my salvific mission. So this is the crazy thing. I want to be really clear. When I talk about desire here, what I'm not preaching is a health and wealth gospel. <laughs> when Jesus engages us in our desire, he's going to call us to participate in his life 
and his passion and his death and his resurrection. He's inviting us into the whole thing, but it starts with this invitation to intimacy to come be, remain, come deeper, participate in the, salva in the salvation of the world with me. And you know what? John fails, <laughs> which is kind of hopeful for all of us who are trying and fail regularly. But the thing that's different about John and the rest of the apostles is he was able to do what? Remain with Jesus throughout the rest of his passion and death. He was the only apostle who did. He went to the courtyard. He watched Jesus get condemned to death, presumably scourged and crowning of thorns, and then make his way up to Calvary. And he's standing at the foot of Calvary watching our Lord lay his whole life down. What enabled him to do that? I'm not sure, but I'd like to think that it was that he knew he was the one that Jesus loved. It was all that time he spent remaining with him that gave him the courage to go into the suffering with Jesus, to remain with him there. And I want to stop here because in a really beautiful way, Mary Magdalene and John's lives converge at the crucifixion and resurrection. So let's go up to Mary Magdalene. So this is John's experience of encounter through desire with Jesus. Now, a lot of people, or in tradition, it varies on who Mary Magdalene is in all the scripture accounts. Some people associate her with the adulterous woman. Some people associate her with Mary of Bethany. For our purposes tonight, I just want to focus on the four places it explicitly talks about her name, or when she's identified by name in the Gospels. So what we do know about Mary Magdalene for sure is that she was afflicted with seven demons at one point. So presumably, her first encounter with Jesus, I don't know if it was the first, but the defining encounter with Jesus was when he came and freed her. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't been possessed in my time. <laughs> I don't think anyway. And this woman was afflicted with seven demons. I mean, the kind of misery, the kind of suffering, the kind of desperation she must have been in. And at some point, Jesus met her in that place of captivity and he came as one stronger than the strong man who was binding her in her sin. And he freed her. And I hope that there are people tonight in this room who know that experience, who have tasted the mercy of Jesus meeting their misery. But I assume that that's exactly what Mary Magdalene felt. That she felt the great need from the consequences of sin in her life, whether it was somebody's abuse towards her, her own choices, she was suffering deeply. And Jesus came and met her in that place and freed her. And how did she respond? She too accompanied Jesus. It says in scriptures that she accompanied Jesus with other women, providing from their own means. So she too desired to respond by being with Jesus in that place. And as you go further, you realize she too was at the foot of the cross. And at the foot of the cross, how was she able to remain there? While this doesn't necessarily refer to Mary Magdalene, it speaks about a woman who was forgiven much and comes and pours out uh, the, the nard upon the feet of Jesus and washes his feet with her hair and cleanses it with her tears. Even if that wasn't Mary Magdalene, I imagine that's an experience she would have had 
that one who's forgiven much loves much. That in gratitude, she starts to follow our Lord because his mercy has totally changed her whole life because he's met her in her need. So Jesus is appealing to her in this place of absolute anguish. And as she comes out of that place, she desires to give herself back. So here we are, we're at the foot of the cross, and they both watch our Lord lay his life down for us, neither fully understanding what's going on here. They don't see the whole picture yet. And so, in the morning, on the third day, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. And we'll use John's account, since they're both accounted for in it. But she sees the empty tomb, and she runs back to tell Peter and John and the other disciples, they've taken away the Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. So John and Peter run back to the empty tomb, and they just see burial claws rolled up. And it's interesting because it says Peter goes in first, and then John follows. And it says, and John believed. Even though they did not yet understand what was spoken about him in the scriptures. John is one of the first to believe. And his faith, again, I think is rooted in this place of, I have met the Lord and his love for me. I don't understand what's going on here, but I trust something good's happening. But what's interesting is that Peter and John leave, and Mary Magdalene stays behind. And Mary Magdalene is consumed with grief. She's totally overwhelmed at the loss of her Savior, the man who totally changed her life. She she was willing to give him everything, and he's gone. And the thing that's crazy is that at this moment, when she's totally consumed, angels appear to her. And in every other account in scripture, when angels appear, people are like, whoa, like they're taken aback. Even Mary, our lady, is like taken aback in fear. And it barely phases her. They're like, woman, why are you weeping? She's like, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. I mean, she's just so distraught. And as she says this, she turns and she sees the gardener. And it's Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. And he says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Now listen, is this not the same language that he spoke to John at the very beginning? What do you seek? And what does John say? Rabbi, where are you staying? What does Mary Magdalene say in response? Whom do you seek? If you've taken away the body of my Lord, please just tell me where you've laid him. And Jesus is like, okay, you're you're missing it. And what does he say? Mary. It's in that moment that he calls her name. And she says, Rabboni, Rabboni. She recognizes that it's Jesus. She calls him teacher just as John calls him teacher. And she starts to hold on to him. Where are you staying? Like, I want to be with you. This response is the same because he starts to appeal to her desire. It moves from this need and this anguish to this desire because he's saying, Mary, the angels are the one who told her, why are you seeking the living among the dead? I know I encountered you in that place of deep pain and brokenness. 
but I'm alive. We don't, I don't need to meet you there. I need you to come out here and meet me here. There's a new life ahead of you, and I think that's a real temptation for those of us who've experienced real pain in our lives, and Jesus has met us there. Sometimes we think we have to stay there and be perpetually broken or just rehash wounds. Sometimes he just says, Mary, there's a new life I'm offering you. Come and see. Now, the most beautiful part, I think, about this is that John, who was the faithful disciple, still doesn't yet understand and he has not yet met the risen Lord. Who tells him that Jesus has risen from the dead? It's Mary Magdalene. She becomes the apostle to the apostles. She's the first one who says, I have seen the Lord. It's from her encounter with the risen Lord that she's able to go testify to other people that he is alive. Not only has he changed my life, but he is actually offering us a new life here. And interestingly, in the further account after this, when the disciples go back to Galilee, Mary Magdalene told them not only that she had seen the Lord, but Jesus said, stop holding on to me. Go and tell my brethren that I'm going to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. This is crazy. I don't know if you've ever caught this before, but this is the first time that he's called his Father, our Father. He teaches the disciples to pray, our Father. But in this moment, he's telling them, listen, in the Garden of Eden, God walked with you, but you are not his children. But because I became a man and took on your broken humanity, entered into the depths of it with you, and then invited you to newness of life, you are his children too. This is, the, this is the beauty and the freedom and the joy of the gospel, is that it's not just he comes to meet us and heal us or answer our needs and desires, but he invites us to participate in Trinitarian life, which what is that? It's perfect love. So if you're feeling frustrated that a friend blew you off, or you're having troubles in your relationship, or your, your relationship with your parents is super broken and messy and painful, come and see. He's offering us an invitation to experience the Father as he experiences the Father. What a beautiful gift. And I stand here tonight just in a place of humility because I've experienced what, what John and what Mary Magdalene have experienced. I grew up in a, a cradle Catholic home. I was blessed with an incredible family, a great Catholic education. My family was financially stable. I was pretty good at school and sports. I had some good friends. I was living a pretty solid life. But I desired something more. And Jesus slowly kept inviting me to go deeper and deeper. But in the parallel side of things, I struggle a lot with anxiety. And it's really scary. In the worst moments, you feel out of control, you feel like there's not a lot of hope, you start grasping at a lot of things. And actually, it was in that place where I started grasping that there was a lot of unhealthy relationships that formed, dependencies that formed, things like that, because I was looking for security outside of God. I started to grasp just like Adam and Eve. And you know what? I suffered a lot from the consequences of that grasping. 
And it was there that I met Jesus in a place that nobody else could meet me. It was in a place of feeling totally dark, feeling like there was nobody who could, could meet me in this place of loneliness and a temptation to despair, that I realized Jesus was knocking on the door of my heart and all I had to do was open it and he was right there. And he said, Carrie, come and see. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? I want to come show you the Father like I know the Father. So as we continue tonight, I just want to make that invitation to you. What are the ways in your own heart that he is stirring up desire or that he's helping you recognize your need? What are the ways that Jesus wants to come meet you by inviting you to come and see or by calling you out of that place of pain and brokenness? Because in the end, when you encounter him, it's then that you can go proclaim to others, I have seen the Lord. And he is your father too. Come and see. Thank you for listening to the Christ the King at LSU podcast. The ministry here is possible thanks to our generous supporters. If you would like to become a CTK Golden Giver or learn more, please check our website. Your monthly financial support reaches hearts across LSU's campus and beyond. Details can be found on the website at ctklsu.org.